would continue to stand and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 37. I'm not going to be reading as much as I did in the first service, so you can thank me later. Uh, we're going to start in verse 18 instead of 12. So I think your legs can handle it unless you're just adjusting to the altitude. And then maybe we'll talk about it later. So we are leaving kind of a, we're going through the book of Genesis. What we're going to see is that a lot of these stories kind of frame the listener's understanding of themselves and the mission of the world and answering questions like what God is like. And what is our intention for me as one of his people? And so we're turning away from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we're coming to the stories of Joseph, and they're figuring out how in the world did we end up in this place called Egypt? Well, here's the backstory. And so we are now finding out that God is working, and he's, they're finding themselves in this sort of a new place. And they're wondering, can God be really working now, even in the midst of all this? Or is he just going to be silent? Does God notice? Do we wonder the same thing too? Does God notice me? And through the narrative of Joseph, we will hear maybe not God speak, but we'll see him act. And we must acknowledge that he hears our distress. So let's read. They saw him from afar, that is, Joseph, and this is his brother, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now. Let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say, A fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see that we'll, what will become of his dreams. Because he had these dreams about him being great, right? But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into the, this pit here in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brother, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh, and his brother's listener. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold, and, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy's gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their fathers and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son or not. And he identified it and said, My son's robe. The fierce animals devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol with my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, a 
an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. You see, these stories of Joseph that we're going to carry out through the rest of the book of Genesis, I know it's 50 chapters, we've been doing this since January, okay, it's, it's long. It takes a long time to set the frame of mind for the people. The stories of Joseph are to remind the listeners that their God is steadfast, that his love doesn't run out of them. He doesn't tire of showing them good, not even our sin and faithlessness will undo his faithfulness. Not even the sin of these brothers can undo the unstoppable work of God, his plan to save the world through one of them. They are to be assured that beyond creation, there is one who cares for them, knows their name, and he is the one writing history. He's not capricious, he is not absent, and our sin is no match for his faithful love. And these stories are to capture and frame our imagination so that we would understand what we're to be like when we show up in school on Monday on Zoom. That sounds weird, but anyway, that's the way it's going nowadays. So, it's supposed to shape everything that they're doing. It captures their imagination. It fuels their hope and empowers their hands. This living God does it through these stories. I grew up in a superstitious family. Right? It's a, kind of a cultural thing. I'm Filipino. My mother is an immigrant, so I'm pretty superstitious. So much so that I will never, ever put my feet on a pillow. Why? Because then that does damage to my head somehow. I don't know how that works. I'm superstitious. I'm just that way. Okay? Also, another one, if my Bible somehow used to be on the floor, I was somehow desecrating God. If you could do that, that's what I believe, that's the way I grew up in my home. So I'm super, you know, I'm kind of crazy superstitious. If you have a sick loved one in your house, do not leave the door open because the walk-walk might come by and steal their soul. Okay? You guys laugh, but this is stories that were told in my household. Okay? So, I'm superstitious. I believe that somehow, at that time, in my world and my imagination is shaped that there is a truer truth behind and underneath guiding the world. That someone else is like pulling the strings to this world. I do an action, there's a butterfly effect into the world. And this left me feeling vulnerable and suspicious about everything. The thing is, is a lot of us, we're all vulnerable and suspicious about a lot of things, right? And so we're all looking for the explanation that can make sense to the meaning of this world. Why does this happen? Why, why do we have coronavirus out there in the world now? You see, Vince is superstitious, to which I might actually think because I did not eat my dinner, we have coronavirus now. That's the way I grew up. Western Americans aren't much different. We yearn for meaning and to put pieces together. Why is coronavirus happening? We're all looking for something that can substantiate us in this world. Ancients look for Gnostic teachings to make everything connect, right? But what do we do now? We can't resist the good conspiracy theory. 
You know, since the advent of the global exchange of information, since you've got that iPhone in your hand, and Wikipedia's in there, and now YouTube, and everything else that you could possibly want, you can look up anything. In 2001, I looked up a conspiracy theory about how 9-11 was an inside job. And it took these crazy little points and weaved them all together, and I'm like, aha! It was an inside job. Doesn't really matter. I don't really believe it was an inside job, but I see young people smiling because they looked this up. We are, we 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 think it isn't just our old crank Uncle Joe anymore who believes that 9/11 was an inside job, or Uncle Joe isn't the only one that believes that global warming was actually real. Wouldn't they send military people in to stop the polluters? You know, it isn't just Uncle Joe that believes that coronavirus is genetically engineered in order to give a reason for these tech companies and the government to ingest us with nanotechnology in the vaccine so it can trace everyone. Uncle Joe isn't the only one who believes that certain deaths of black people have been staged so that foreign entities could destabilize race relations before the election. Uncle Joe, the gold crank, isn't the only one who believes that Donald Trump is waging a secret war against billionaire pedophiles of the deep state. No, these things are believed by our neighbor and maybe even some of us. I'm not here to address whether they're true or not. I will give you little little rules about how to, how to kind of decipher this stuff later, but that's an aside. I'm trying to figure out why is this so universally appealing. The Israelites were in Egypt trying to figure out how in the world did we get here and how is God working. So they're vulnerable, they're anxious, they're scared. And they need to have the background story of how they got there. And what is God doing? And is He actually working? And what we'll see in the story of Joseph throughout his life that there is something working in the background that is deeper and truer. It's the truest true. And in fact, it is the divine conspiracy of Father, Son, Holy Spirit making all things that are sad come untrue. It is that He is actually going to bless the world and He's going to make it happen and He's going to undo sin and death as a power and He's going to do it by subjecting Himself to sin and death. And we get a glimpse of that in the story of Joseph. So why do we love conspiracies? One, it gives us a sense of knowledge and certainty of the world. It gives us answers. We can put it into a little folder. Conspiracies also answer our desire for control and security. If I know what is going on, then I can control my world. And nothing will take me by surprise. So when the government comes knocking on my door with their nanotech vaccine, I can tell them, get out of here, yo. And so, that's the way it goes. We also have conspiracies allow us to answer the desire to maintain this positive self-image. And these conspiracies, they capture our imagination. But God seems to understand that His people, they need this true conspiracy. They need to know the truth for them to live with, live in the difficult situation, to put up with the anxiety. They need something to give them hope. And they need to know that this God, although He is not 
going to answer them directly out of His mouth, that He is the true orchestrator of all things, and that when we follow Him in faith by living lives of integrity for the sake of our neighbors, we will see Him work out His salvation for the world. And so in our text, we see that God conspires despite our conspiracies. In Christianity, it believes that God orchestrates a world where God undoes the power of sin and death by being handed over to sin and death. And this is a great comfort. It means that your sin, the discomfort and death of your loved ones, all your bickering and fighting with your siblings, all the mounting student loans in your life is not going to undo God's mission for the world. He is going to make it happen, happy, even through that. And so we need to look at the great conspiracy in our conspiring. The great conspiracy. The beginning of chapter 37 reveals uh, that, that Joseph is loved by his father Jacob, and that he is going to be a ruler, even though he's just 17 years old. So he's young. Imagine you're 28 years old, and your 17-year-old younger brother is somehow become the next ruler of the people, and that God is going to bless the world through some snivelly little 17-year-old. Okay? And somehow he is loved by Dad. How are you going to feel? You're going to feel, okay, this God is conspiring against me. I know this because Joseph is a punk. And so that's the way they probably feel. And then not only that, Joseph gets two dreams from God, right? One of them is about these thieves that bow down to the thief that is representative of Joseph. And then Joseph has the audacity to tell his brothers not about one dream, but two dreams. And he's like, yo, Y'all gonna bow down to me? You tell me you do not want to punk this guy, right? So the narrator is writing this so that the audience is to see that Joseph is a self-righteous punk, and somehow God is going to work through this boastful person like this. There has to be something else going on in the world. It's something deeper, a truer truth, a great conspiracy for this to actually mean something, for it to actually work. Why? Because God doesn't work through punks, does He? Yes, He does. How do I know? Because many of you have blessed me in my life, okay? And I know that God can work through punks like you and me. Self-righteous, jerky people. God has conspired to work through messed up, so, God's plan of redeeming the world, though, has come, and it's going to come through one person, and the story is starting to build for that. All of Genesis is looking for this. It is through one person specifically, this one person that God is, is going to put forward to destroy sin and death in the truest, true exodus. In Genesis 3.15, he's speaking to the serpent. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his seed. 
In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he chooses Abram in order that through his offspring, singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In Exodus 19, God chooses a rambunctious group of Israelites who are a bunch of slaves and have nothing going for them. Oh, never mind that Abram was also a moon-worshipping pagan, that God was going to work through a moon-worshipping pagan should be some comfort to you. Okay, anyway. But, back to Exodus 19. He chooses this ragtag nation. Small, feeble, can't fight, and they're scared out of their wits. And he says to them, you're going to be my treasured possession, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Then in Jesus, who's from Nazareth, and everyone says, what good can come from Nazareth? God chooses Jesus, the God-man, that in order through him, he is going to be the one in whom is chosen to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to be a ransom for many, to lay his life down for the sheep. And it is said of him that it would be better that one man should die for the people instead of the whole nation. God is conspiring something crazy through lesser-known little people. In Ephesians 1, it says that people like you and me, his church, messed up people. In order to give them hope and strength on the journey, Paul says that we were chosen by grace in him before the foundation of the world, and that in chapter 2, it is for good works. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we are said about us that we are chosen right to royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that we could walk around and boast in it and look down our noses at everybody else. No! No! What is it for? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It is not for self-righteousness. It's not so that you could just feel good about yourself. Yes, being chosen by God and being loved by God should be a great comfort and hope to you. It should cause you to sing. It should cause you to feel like you want to fly. But, what does that look like? It looks like service to others and caring for others. Joseph, the plan of God, and it inflated his ego and topped the confidence of his brothers. It went straight to Joseph's head and cut directly to the heart of his brothers. In Jesus, we see the fullness of God's plan played out in choosing a people, not because they had uh, anything to boast about or because they were good. They couldn't earn anything. You and I could not earn God's favor, but it is on us because we were created in His image, and He loves us. in order that we may have new life in Him, and that we may serve and care for others, and extend His kingdom, His program, that we may live out His true conspiracy, the conspiracy of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the conspiracy of love that undoes sin and death. And this is a challenge to our kingdom. If God's kingdom is the true kingdom, then it is going to run contrary to our own desires, especially in a world that tells you, you be you, you make your own world, you make your own way. Often our desires will make us 
think that what this world exists to do is to make our little kingdoms better. Our children are supposed to act really nice, never make any noises, and they are supposed to live in order that I may look like I'm the parent of the year all the time. And they just walk out with a wonderful peanut butter and jelly sandwich and say, Thank you, Dad. You are the greatest dad of all time. And that is how we try to build our kingdom. And so I will force all my kids to play ridiculous amounts of string or instruments in order that they can go to college on scholarships so I don't have to pay a cent and I can use that and go about my merry life with my wife who will get a job and there will be dual income, no kids when they're in college, and we can ride around in an adventure van for the rest of our lives. Okay? And that... Yeah, at times, is how I think of my kingdom. You guys think I joke, but it's only a little bit of a joke. Okay. <laughs> uh, but you and I aren't different. We have these kingdom programs, don't we? And we want God to get on our program. We want God to be about our kingdom and not us about His kingdom. We, we hope that God will make us comfortable. But God's plan at times is to make you uncomfortable for the comfort of others. We hope that God will give us a good reputation and everybody will love us and think the best of us, that we don't have to do no marketing plan. Our beautiful smile will market for us, but God's plan will maybe that you will lose a good reputation for the good name of others. We hope for riches in this world, but maybe we may lose them all and give them to others so they may thrive. You see, when it is our joy to do His will, to live for His kingdom, we will find that all things really do work for good because it will be our greatest joy to bring Him joy. Only when we really understand and pray in faith, Thy will be done, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven, we will begin to see how the great conspiracy plays out in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and that He is making and renewing all things. Only because God is actually in control, and He's working out His true conspiracy, we can see that we could care for others, that we could be a people who serve like He served. Jesus said, if you want to be great, you got to serve others. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. A new command I give you, to love one another. And what was His example of loving one another? Washing stinky feet. So we serve. We also submit. Submit to one another with regard to Christ, he says, Paul says. It means that we lay down our desires and we pick up new ones after Christ's likeness. It means sacrificing. Jesus said, no greater love is than, there is no greater love than this, that one lays his life down for his brothers. And so we will inconvenience ourselves, giving our time, talents, and resources for the sake of others. Being chosen by God does not mean that we are free to boast and do whatever we want. Being chosen by God means that we have the freedom 
to not be enslaved to the demands of our own kingdom-building project, but the freedom to live as servants for His kingdom come. And that is the truth of how to be really, truly human. That it is in Christ that you will find your true humanity and love and service to others because Christ has loved and served you. So what do we do with all these conspiracies, Vince? So this is an aside. First, you need to ask, how much does it really impact my life? The first conspiracy theory that I watched had to do with unsolved mysteries a number of years ago with JFK. If someone else killed JFK besides Lee Harvey Oswald, what was that going to change in my life? Zero. Zero. It would have changed zero in my life. Okay? So you need to ask yourself, how important is it going to change anything? So you can take it with a grain of salt in many of us. We also change, uh, challenge conspiracies by testing its internal logic. You start to ask questions by putting it up against its own razor. Like, and so people might say something like, oh, you know, you can't trust the Bible. It's uh, been mistranslated and, and misinterpreted. And I'm like, well, that's wonderful. Um, tell me more about your interpretation and how did you arrive there? And how, how do I trust you? So you put it up against its own internal logic. You see, and this is how you look at it. Will these conspiracies actually change anything in my life? If they were true. Not many of them would. So, you move on. More than that, how in the world does God work with our conspiracy? Uh, one of my favorite movies is a movie called Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell. Of course, you know, you, you see him and, and you think, oh my gosh, look, it's the elf man. This is going to be a funny movie. Yes, there are funny incidents in the movie, but it's very serious. So my kids, I don't recommend them watching it. It's about this account named Harold Crick. He is very uh, ordinary, and he does things by the book, so much so that he is OCD. But then he begins to hear the writer of his life narrating it out loud in his head. So much so, it starts off with, he did not know he was going to die in a week. And he goes, say what? Like, he stops out loud like, I'm going to die? How? He didn't know he was going to die, and so he starts living this out. And he begins a conspiracy campaign to find out who wrote it, and he wants to fight back. I can't live this life. What's going on? So he conspires back. And somehow, in the end, in all his conspiring, the writer writes in his conspiracy, he's conspiring into the work in order that it works out for his good in the end. And it can only be done if the person who is in control is actually personal. Most of these conspiracy theories tell you that the real things that are in control are these completely inanimate objects. But what's really in control are things like karma. Just indiscriminately you know, giving out things because it's impersonal, right? But no, all are conspiring, only, only a God who is in control, and a God who is stronger than our control, the one who actually loves us and cares for us, could possibly make all our conspiring work for the great conspiracy. 
First, we look at Jacob's favoritism. Jacob's favoritism was to bestow upon Joseph this, uh, this cloak. And in this cloak, he's to be a ruler of some sort. And all his brothers just start to seize and increase their antagonism. Joseph is self-righteous. He has all these stories. Like, he knows these stories. And instead of serving people, he's all like, look at me, y'all serve me. Right? The brothers then conspire, it says, to hand Joseph over to the powers of the world in order that they may be alleviated and saved and spared the self-righteous weirdness and, you know, the, the, the stuck-upness of their brother Joseph. That they would turn him over and that they may be saved. And so they are working to save themselves, to alleviate the difficulty and anxieties in their hearts. And you and I, we all have conspiracies. We're all controlled by these powers of sin and death. We're afraid of being exposed. We're afraid of being vulnerable. We have desires to control narratives. Have you ever been, point, has anyone ever pointed out something negative to you? Well, you did something wrong. What do you want to do immediately? You want to control the narrative. And so what do you do? You got to fight with your friends? You go and you tell five other friends so that you can get those friends on your side and make that other friend look like an idiot. They're an idiot. And so that's what they do. Notice that the brothers are conspiring together to fight against this one Joseph. We're going to kill him. But that's the way we are. We want to control these narratives. We desire to be right. We will defend ourselves. Keep it now. We will leverage all our logic. We will tell ourselves, you can't possibly be right. Why? Because as soon as I did this, you did this. And will you only do this? If I did that, so therefore I couldn't have done that. You have to be wrong, and I'm right. And instead of actually being an open-chested person saying, well, maybe I'm wrong, you always have to defend yourself. You always have to maintain this positive self-image. We all have these conspiracies of the heart. Schemes and plans to make ourselves great, to make ourselves worthwhile, to make ourselves loved. And all our scheming and all our planning can really give us the control that we want. Let me put it this way. My dad would have been 59 years old today. And for all I know, my dad died as an unrepentant sinner. I tried everything, every scheme in the book to get him to become a Christian. Everything. Everything. I mean everything. And in the end, he still died. But only knowing that there is a God who is actually in control and who cares and that I can actually go to him cry out to Him, can I have any possible alleviation for all my conspiring? That if in the end it's not up to me, then in the end God is actually in control, then all my conspiring and scheming, all my sinfulness, does the strangest thing. 
It works toward my salvation. What do I mean by this? You see, Jesus is actually the true beloved Son. The one who didn't boast, who didn't show off. And for the sake of his brothers and his position, he served them and cared for them. But yet they still turn him over by their scheming, your scheming, my scheming. And we turn Jesus over to the powers of sin and death for silver. Jesus was betrayed and rejected by his followers, handed over. He was stripped, naked, beaten, and put in the pit of death. And it was your sin and my sin. It was our scheming that put him there. And it fulfilled the great conspiracy so that it would unfold at just the right time. So what this means is this. That we have new life in Him and His resurrection. And God takes all your messiness, all your failure, and puts it together like broken tiles into a great mosaic so that your life fits in the beautiful artwork and masterpiece that God is making and renewing in the person of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. And we confess that. And He bears it in the scars in His hands and in His side. And He does that for you and for me. As Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. God somehow, in some weird way, takes all of your brokenness, all of your sad stories, and writes them into a beautiful poem. It is a conspiracy worked out before the foundation of time between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Pray. Almighty and loving God, be with us now as we come to your table and that we may understand in little portions the great mystery that it is, that is, Jesus Christ's broken body, poured out blood, that God became man and sacrificed for us so that we may be whole. Lord, meet with us now in this meal. Strengthen our faith that we may see you. We may know you more. In Christ's name.